Awesome. Thanks, Linda. <clears throat> yeah, this is going to be a great evening or a great day together doing that with that kids carnival. Uh, this is an outreach, one of, one of those outreach events where we're, we're going to talk a little bit about in members class when we get to uh, kind of the local mission. This is getting out into the community, inviting people into the gathering of the church uh, so that they might fall deeply in love with Jesus. So this is an opportunity that uh, we're giving you uh, to serve the body, serve one another and love one another and serve obviously our kids and have a gospel presentation like Linda was saying. So, so good. Well, good morning. My name is Jer. Uh, so good to be with you here this morning. And uh, we've got uh, some things going on to, today. Uh, we're going to continue on our discipleship series. Uh, this is a, actually a series going called Core Values. So we're going, a couple weeks ago, we talked about evangelism. Uh, another core value is discipleship and then a core value of community. And Linda's standing there, which means I got to pray for the kids. So before we get into it, kids, kids, all right, discipleship, assurance of salvation. Here we go. Why don't you come on up, guys? Yeah, Cruz wins the prize for being first to the stage. Nicely done. You get a high five. You got to get it. Come on, let's get it. Let's get it. Let's get it. Oh, oh, oh. Nicely done. Nicely done. Look at all these kids. So good. Let's take a knee. All right, let's take a knee. All right, let's bow our heads and thank Jesus for today. All right. All right, nice and calm, nicely done. Well, Jesus, we thank you so much for these children. We thank you that uh, you call the little children to yourself, uh, that you love them. You've actually called us adults to be like little children, have faith like these ones. And so I pray that uh, as they go off to Sunday school, Lord, that they will learn about who you are, that they will put their faith and their trust in you fully. And uh, Lord, that uh, they will live a Christ-centered life, that they would be assured of their salvation. And as they learn these things that we're learning here on, in, in the adult gathering, Lord, uh, that they will apply these things to the life early on in life, uh, that they will... Um, uh, live for you and uh, devote their lives to you and be servants of your church and, and your kingdom. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. You guys are so good and quiet. Well done. All right. All right. Back at it. I'm Jer. <laughs> Welcome. All right. That was a little prelim here. So we got, like I, like I was saying, we've got a discipleship or core value series. We've got evangelism, discipleship, and community. Community, we're going to hit probably in December sometime because discipleship, I wanted to take a little bit longer, walk through this. And so this is the first, I guess, of nine weeks in a row. And so the last week was Christ-centered life. That was kind of an uh, intro to this, uh, to live out these nine character or these nine discipleship kind of things, these foundational pieces of the church. We want to be a Christ-centered people. We want to be Christ-living. We want to live for him in all that we do, whatever we do, how we eat, how we drink, uh, and all that. And so the first one here that we're going to talk about today is assurance of salvation. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump right in. Uh, Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you are our Savior, that we have nothing to do with our salvation, and Lord, let, let us hear that and remember that and be reminded of that. That is not our work, but it is your work. It is your work that saves us. It is by Christ alone. And so I pray, Jesus, that we will remember you, that we ascribe to you all that you, that you uh, deserve. And uh, the biggest thing is our salvation. 
And so we thank you for your work that you performed here on earth, uh, that you came and you lived and you died and you rose again for paying the penalty that we deserve to pay. And so help us, Lord, as we talk about these things, help us be reminded of these things, these foundational truths, and that we will go out and be conduits of your amazing grace to others, that we will serve others as you have served us, that we will, that we will love others and love one another as you have loved us, and that, we, that we will be quick to forgive one another. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the end of days is coming. The end of days is coming. All right, we hear this all the time, right? We hear this in uh, news. We hear these on TV shows. Like there's many TV shows actually out there right now on Netflix or wherever they are where you tend to watch TV shows. Uh, There's these end of days uh, series that are out there. Uh, And we're not the first generation to talk about this stuff. Uh, we're not the first generation. I remember my grandma actually talking about the sin number, the, the, and just, it's funny calling it sin number, the social insurance number. That was the mark of the beast. All right. And so sitting on the ground, listening to my grandparents talk, this was the end of the days, right? The, the social insurance number. And so it's not, we're not the first generation, but it actually goes back all the way to probably to, if you think about it, when, when Noah's boat landed on the top of Mount Ararat. And I'm sure no one in his family were talking about this stuff because they actually witnessed the end of days. The end of days for all people, all creatures. Like God literally washed the earth clean. And they were the only people that walked on this earth. And so maybe it's from then. Maybe it's from that point on that we are starting to be worried about this. Could God actually do this again? But we all remember, right? Like we remember that the rainbow is in, it was in the sky to, to give a, a, an example to us, a covenant of sorts, a covenant to Noah that he will not ever flood the earth again. Maybe this thought and even fear uh, started maybe even before that. Because we can't ignore the fact that a holy God cannot be in the presence of rebellion and sin. That's why the flood in the first place. Because of the rebellion and sin. That's why God did come and judge the world. That's why he did did destroy all living creatures in the days of Noah. This may have been the question from the day, like I said, from Noah's family walked the washed earth because sin continued to knock on the heart of every human. Sin continued to knock on the door. Like it didn't take long for Noah and his family to sin. Like Noah built a little vineyard, got drunk, And one of his sons defiled him. We see this in the scripture. The very sin God purged the world from entered back in just as fast as it was removed. But Noah and his family weren't the originators of sin. The need for salvation actually happened before then. The need for salvation goes all the way back into Romans chapter 5 verse 12 where it tells us that the originator of sin was Adam. And because Adam sinned, all men have sinned and have have a tendency to do so. We all have it. And we feel it, don't we? Like we feel the sin. Can I at least get like this? Yes, like we, <laughs> amen. We feel it. We, we have a tendency to lie. We have a tendency to disobey. We have a tendency to rebel. Like every one of us, we, we have a tendency to take things that aren't belonging to us. Like there's amazing loaf back there that have no chocolate chips in it because the boys ate all the chocolate chips. Right, Hannah boys? Right, that's why there's no chocolate chips in the banana loaf. 
That's what your mom told me anyways. Uh, because there's no chocolate chips to be found, right? Like we're taking things. We have a tendency to take things that aren't ours. We have a tendency to do things that we desire, but we know that are wrong to do. And we see this in ourselves, but we see this in others all the time. So for Adam, the promise of a rainbow wasn't, wasn't it for him. It was actually the, a blood covenant for Adam. It was a blood co- covenant. See, the offering of blood taken from the innocent and pain for the guilty. Adam and Eve knew their guilt as soon as they ate the fruit God commanded them not to eat, and they remembered their guilt by walking around in blood-stained clothes. The problem with us, with us, with our world, is that we, we don't think we are guilty. And because we don't think we are guilty, then when offered salvation from our sin, from our rebellion, it doesn't land. Because we don't think we need salvation from anything because we're okay. See, in this discipleship series, we're hitting the basics, the foundational things of Christian living, to be Christ follower. And today we are hitting assurance of salvation, assurance that you are saved, even when in the presence of a holy God. See, friends, this is one of, if not most, the most important of these topics that we will hit. But before we talk of assurance, we need to be all on the same page. Like, we need to get this. We need to be in great, like, we need to know this deeply that we desperately need to be pure and untainted, but the problem is we aren't. It is actually impossible for us to be perfect, but let me take it one step further. It's actually impossible for you to be good. Like the Bible says this right in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, where Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. Like if you think you're good, like there's been studies like walking around the streets and maybe, maybe ask your neighbors this this week is like, hey, do you think you're a good person? And the studies show that 95% of people will say yes to that question. But here in the scripture, we have a different answer. No one is good but God alone. Or in Romans 3, 10, and verse 11, 10 and 11, it says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one actually seeks for God. And your very conscience would convict you when you read Psalm 15. Let's take a look at it. It's on the screen. There's, it starts with two questions. And it says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who, shall be in your, who can be with you in your presence? And the second question is, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Same question, how can I be in your presence? And then he answers it. He says, he who walks blamelessly. Well, I think that gets 100% of us out instantly. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does, not, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Well, not one of us has fulfilled these things. Not one. And it goes further, right? If you go to James chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one point has become guilty of all of it. So like Adam, we are desperately 
desperately needing saving. We need salvation. This brings us to our topic this morning, assurance of our saving, the assurance of salvation. And I want to ask you two questions, cover these two questions, and then go and eat some lunch. Or go to the members class, because I've got some pizzas coming, all right? So pizzas, I just realized that, though, I have no plates. So this is what happens when you, when you get me to do these things. All right, so two questions that I want to answer for us, and they're on the screen. How do I become saved before a holy God? How do I be untainted? How do I be perfect in a, before a holy God? And how am I assured of my saving? Well, number one, how do I become saved before a holy God? I don't want to simplify this because this is one of those, like I said last week, a, 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 a complete renovation of sorts from old life to new. But at the same time, I want to spend the appropriate time with the second question that we will cover today. So how am I saved? Well, like the story of Adam and Eve, there is nothing that you can do to save yourself from the wrath of God. Nothing. You cannot do anything. There is no work that you can do to outweigh the scale of your sin. It is impossible. But everything to do with what has been done for you by God. You see, from the time of Adam, Jesus has been foreshadowed in most every story up until he entered the scene in Gospel of Matthew. The Bible is one story telling the story of the coming kingdom of God and revealing to us how to enter into that kingdom by only one way, the way of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the sacrificial lamb that was foreshadowed all all the way back to Adam. It is by Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb told in the story of Adam. Jesus is the better Noah, Joseph, David, prophet, king, and judge. He's the better one. And Jesus himself proclaims this in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 15, friends. How do you enter into the holy hill? How do you get into the tent of God? You be Jesus. Jesus does this for you. He fulfills all of those things in Psalm 15. He is the one that enters in and is in the presence of the Holy One. So to be saved is to confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. In Romans 9 and 10, it says that exactly. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, like confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and a belief kind of like how you believed in sitting down today. Like these chairs aren't the greatest, are they? Right? But you believed that when you plunked your body down, that that chair was going to hold you up. You have faith in an object. You had faith enough to believe that that chair would hold you. Now transfer that faith onto a holy, perfect, almighty, king of kings, lord of lords, God. If you put your faith into God, it's not the size of your faith, it's in the object. So you put your faith in the object of God, It says, you will be saved. And every time we come on Sunday, you have enough faith to put your body on that chair. And God is saying, put your faith in me and you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Or in Acts 4.12 where it says, and there is salvation in no one else, no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, every religion out there teaches a different Jesus, right? There's all kinds of different Jesuses out there. 
In every religion that proclaims that Jesus is a teacher or a prophet or a miracle worker, even some form of a deity, but it is not the real Bible-taught Jesus is a different Jesus, a false God. It's a little g God, and following that Jesus will end horribly for you. So you're putting your faith in these false gods, you will be destined for eternal hell. In the Jewish tradition, they believed Jesus was born to Mary, but that she wasn't a virgin. Believed he was a prophet, a teacher, proclaimed to be Messiah, and died on the cross, just never resurrected. In Islam, they believed Jesus was a great prophet, a teacher, a miracle worker, even ascended to heaven and will return again. They unfortunately hold to the teachings that the crucifixion was an illusion, and when Jesus returns, that he will restore Islam and be a follower of Muhammad. The Baha'i faith claims all the religious leaders are messengers of God, and the originator, the founder, uh, was the last of the messengers in 1863. So in a covenant way, they hold to most everyone's teachings about their specific leader. See, obvious many problems will, when arise, will arise if you have every single leader is a messenger from the Lord when they're saying different things. And when Jesus comes to the forefront and says, I'm the only way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, it raises a problem. Buddhism, just another God along with many others. Hinduism, a variety of teachings here because it's, it's so incredibly mixed up. But again, nothing concrete on who Jesus was. Some would actually say that Jesus was divine but not uniquely divine. So to be saved is to, to surrender your life to Jesus, to believe and confess him as Lord of your life, to repent of your sin, and to show this confession by way of baptism. This is our sign. This is our symbol. Like Noah had the, the rainbow. Like, like Abraham had the clothes to put on. And, and we have baptism, the symbol that God has given us to show all that Jesus has done for us, to live, to die, and to rise again, new, new in him. And as we're memorizing in Galatians 2.20, right? We're all memorizing that one? Yeah? Anybody want to come on up and give it a try? No. All right. It says on the screen there, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Right? Christ lives in me, and it is in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We recognize our brokenness. We realize we cannot pay for our brokenness, our sin against the holy God. And Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is our only hope. Confession of Jesus as Lord and belief in his resurrection gives eternal life. This is how one is saved. This is how one is saved. Confess, confession of the mouth that Jesus is Lord. Belief in the heart that God raised him from the dead, that he is the Lord and he died and paid for your debt. Do we believe this, church? Do we believe this? Do we hold this? Do we believe like in our heart that we would sit on that chair? Then you are saved. And the second question then is, how am I assured then of my salvation? How am I assured of this? Because I believe it, I have faith in it, but how am I assured of this? And it's threefold. It's threefold. Trustworthy word, confirming Holy Spirit, and a changed life. So the trustworthy word, how do we know the Bible is the word of God? How, how can we truly trust it? Well, in two weeks, we're going to hit actually the Bible. We're going to hit this a little bit more, but I want to give you a little bit of a prelim for this. 
So the trustworthy word, there's something called textual criticism. I got this off of uh, the Alpha series, but textual criticism examines historical books, the authorship, the authenticity and interpretation. So it also tracks the gap between the original text and the copies that we have. So the original text, and then there's this gap in between the the first copies that begin to come out, right? And so we have this original, and then the gap, and then the copies. And if it's a bigger gap and less copies, then the authenticity of that text is a little bit lessened. We have a hard time understanding if that is actually a true original version. But if you have more copies and less time gap, then it's more authentic, more like you can believe in this authenticity and interpretation and the authorship of this. And so taking a look at some of these things that we actually hold to as truth here in our day and age, uh, some of the books are written on the screen there. Uh, you see the Greek historian Herodotus, and there is a 13-year, so the original copy, 1,300-year time gap, so 1,300 years and then copies. And there's only eight copies. The Roman historian Tacitus, 1,000-year gap with 20 copies. Caesar's Gaelic War, 950-year gap, 9 to 10 copies. Livy's Roman history, 900-year gap, 20 copies. But when you get to the New Testament, it's crazy what we have. See, there's a 40 to 60-year gap for the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, from the time of Jesus' death and resurrection until the time these writings surfaced. There's a 170 to 450-year gap from full, for full manuscripts, full manuscripts, 5,000 Greek copies, 10,000 Latin copies, 9,300 other translations. So the New Testament alone, 170 to 450 year gap, over 20,000 copies to look at to see if it's genuinely saying what it originally said. The New Testament has this many. The Bible stands alone historically as the greatest book we have in human history. F.J.A. Hort, one of the top scholars in textual criticism that look at these things, the time gap and the copies and all that kind of stuff, he said this, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and approachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. The Bible also proclaims to be God, to be the word of God. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if we have all these copies, if we have the evidences, the authenticity of the authorship, all these different things that we can look upon, look upon and go, Oh my goodness, this must be the Word of God. And then also the Word of God itself saying, This is the Word of God. And we're going to get into more of this in a couple of weeks, but this is huge. It is a trustworthy word that we have in our hands with the evidences that we have just looking at it. But then we have the Bible itself proclaiming to be God's word. And also in 1 John 5, 9 through 13, the author writes, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning the Son. Everything about the Word of God is pointing to one man, Jesus. 
And whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the testimony of God. Or even Jesus' words. To his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 25 through 27, points back to the scriptures of old, giving them validity. He says, Oh, foolish ones, when he's talking to these two disciples after the crucifixion, Jesus re- resurrects and shows up uh, miraculously to these two individuals walking back on this road to Emmaus to go home. Our Savior's dead. There's nothing left for us here. We need to go back and work with our fathers. And Jesus shows up to these two men and begins to say, he says this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, pointing back all the way to Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus gives validity to the word of God. And we will get into, like I said, more of this, more evidences of the Bible in a few weeks. But one stat I find fascinating just looking into this stuff is nowhere in archaeological history has there ever been disregard for the Bible. Meaning, the very people that search, dig, and seek, like to find evidence of the past, have yet to disregard the Bible. They actually use the Bible to help them find the physical evidence of history. Fascinating. So we have a trustworthy word that we hold to. How can we be assured of our salvation? We can look at the word and believe what it says, just like you would believe sitting on this chair. We have a trustworthy word. And we also have a confirming Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is not the lesser or the third, meaning lower part of the Trinity, but fully equal as God. We see in Scripture that denying the Holy Spirit is equivalent to denying God himself. We also see that blaspheming the Spirit will guarantee your place in hell. In Matthew 12, 31 to 32, it says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. In other words, speaking against the work of the Spirit is a grave danger. The Holy Spirit is distinct, active in God. And Wayne Grudem speaks of the role of the Holy Spirit when he wrote, the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. Especially here, church. We see him in creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, ready to create and bring life into creation. We see him speaking to our forefathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Joseph, Moses, and others, giving instruction, giving interpretation of dreams, powers to create, perform miracles. We see the Spirit give abilities for the arts to create and build beautiful things in the temple. In Exodus 31, verse 2 and 5, it says this. So you have called by name Bezalel, I think that's how you say it, the son of Uri, son of Ur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, 
with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. We see the Spirit given to the prophets, giving them gifts to see things of the future. Then we see the Spirit empowering Jesus at his baptism, giving him power to bring healing and bring the new creation, the kingdom of God, to the world. And the Spirit is continuing today pointing towards Jesus, filling us with spiritual gifts to encourage one another, to bring mercy into one another's lives, to work in people's hearts to bring a dinner over when you're having a bad week and they didn't even know it. The Spirit of God is working within his church to love on one another, to care for one another, to serve one another, to be quick to forgive one another, to love and care and serve. This is the work of the Spirit. And when it's all pointed back to Jesus, you know it's of the Spirit. Because in John 14, 16, and 17, it says this, and I will ask the Father and Jesus, I, I, Jesus, will ask the Father, and he, God the Father, will give you another helper, the Spirit, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him, the Spirit, nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the confirming Spirit of God. You have and you know you have the Spirit of God when you choose to proclaim Jesus as Lord and desire in your heart to follow his commands. It says this further in John 14, verse 20 and 21. It says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father. Jesus is in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The trustworthy word of God the confirming Holy Spirit within your soul and a changed life. See, last week we hit a little bit of Colossians 1 through 17, talking about the putting off and putting on. And this is the changed life, the desire to become more like Christ, to actually live for him, to be Christ-centered in all that we do. And Jerry Bridges has a good quote. He says this, putting off and putting on is represented by the two blades of a pair of scissors. Like picture that scissor. We readily recognize that a single scissors blade is useless as far as doing the job for which it was designed. The two blades must be joined together at the pivot point and must work in conjunction with each other to be effective. The scissors illustrate a spiritual principle. We must work simultaneously by putting off the characteristics of our old selves and putting on the characteristics of the new selves. One without the other is not effective. So Jesus' brother who wrote the book of James wrote it this way in chapter 2, verse 14 and 17, very similar to what Jerry Bridges just said. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and fill, warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
So also by faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, the Bible over and over again is trying to awaken us to the fact that when you truly accept the free gift of grace, the free gift of grace, works will flow out of you. They'll flow out of you. Earlier in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 22, it says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Are you deceiving yourselves, friends? And I'm asking myself the question as well. Am I deceiving myself? Am I just merely hearing the word of God or am I actually living out the truth of Jesus Christ? John Piper, author and pastor, said this, people who think they are saved who are not because they have never come to see the glory of Christ as compellingly glorious, meaning there will be a change in you. These people believe only on the basis of wanting rescue from harm, not because they see Christ as more beautiful and desirable than all else. Are you living for Christ because he is everything? He is so good, and I want nothing but to be with him. I will be willing to change my whole calendar to be with Jesus. Are we living in that way? Or are we at least moving in that direction? See, there will be a changed life. This is part of your assurance of your salvation. In other words, no one can say that Jesus is Lord and do nothing about it. You can't proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and then continue to live your life of the world. Seeking out things of the world. Desiring the things of the world. Making them the most valuable thing of your life. And feeling no press on your conscience. So you will eventually get to the point where you just cannot keep your faith secret anymore. You will get to the point where you have to share it because it's such good news. See, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says it this way, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit in you. This is why when someone comes to know and believe and confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, there is change. There's a changed life. You no longer do the things you used to do. You, like your friends notice, they go, man, you're different. Something's different about you. You speak about things that you used to never speak about. You do the things that you never used to do. You want to be involved in church? Who are you? Right? You want to tell me now about Jesus all the time? Who are you? Right? There's a change that takes place. And friends, I'm sharing all this stuff because I want us to be changed. I so desperately want us to be changed, like really believe in, in faith that all of this is a free gift. Our salvation is completely free. Nothing that you've done. I'm saying now that you're saved with all that nothing that you've done, let's go and do. Let's not just be hearers and not doers comes out of a flow of our heart. The changed life, the confirming Holy Spirit, the trustworthy word may just in, envelop you to the point where I cannot help but share about Jesus Christ. I started with this talk 
of the end of the world, that it's coming. The Bible talks much of this as well. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, verses 10 and 12, it says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands, and they will all perish. But, Lord, you you will remain. They, the world, the creation, will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. There is a day when Jesus is going to come back and roll this timeline up, and it's going to be done. And just like in Noah's day where he just washed everything clean, he's going to do this perfectly now. And wash all sin clean, completely. Renew this world completely and fill it with his spirit. And it's going to be an amazing place. And we have the opportunity. The kingdom of God has come now in you through the spirit of God residing in you. And you have the opportunity now with the gift of this Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit to live a new life. To live transformed. To touch the people around you with a love of Jesus Christ to bring the kingdom of God into the life of someone that is dead. May we be changed. May we live out the assurance of our salvation by going and now proclaiming and sharing this beautiful message. Because when God rolls this kingdom up and fully restores it to perfection, trust me, you don't want to miss out on that. You don't want to miss out on that. It's going to be amazing. So let's keep it simple. Let's surrender to God. Open our hands and just go, Lord, take my life. I want to use it. Whatever time I have left, I want to use it for you. I want to hand over my life to you. I don't want to live this life anymore without you fully in my life. I want to live for you, for your kingdom, not mine anymore. So whether I work, whether I eat, whether I drink, help me be about your kingdom. Help me bring your kingdom's love into the creation of of this world, to my family, to my friends, to my neighbors. Help me be so much about you, Lord, that people will go, you're different. And I get the opportunity at that point to go, yeah, it's Jesus. Jesus has changed me and he can change you too. So help us keep it simple. Let me, let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, I thank you so much. I thank you for your trustworthy word, for the confirming Holy Spirit that resides in us and for a changed life, an opportunity to actually see and look back on the years before and just go, well, I have changed. There has been movement in my spirit. There has been movement. God, you've changed me. You've, you've transformed me to a newness that, that, I, that I fully get that my sin, my depravity of sin, there's nothing that I can do. And I fully understand that you are my Savior, that there is no one else, that Jesus, you are the one. And I believe that with all of my heart based on the scripture, the trustworthy word and the confirming Holy Spirit. So help continue to transform me, Jesus, into more like your likeness. Help, Jesus, this church that we will transform into more of your likeness. That will be so faithful to just seek your kingdom's good and glory 
in the lives of those friends that are lost, those family members that are lost, that don't know you, or that they think they know you, but yet have never changed. So help us, Lord. Help us be conduits of your amazing grace to the people around us. Help us walk away from here assured. And if not assured, Lord, please convict us deeply to the point that we need to get on our knees and repent and be transformed into your likeness. And so I pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.